Chapter Six of Murder in the Sacristy by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Six. Murderers say the old axiom always return to the scene of the crime, and if thieves have through the exigencies of a quick getaway been forced to hide their plunder, they are bound to come back and look for it. So quite aside from the temporary ban that the church had slapped on little St. Sergius, the state was keeping a close eye on the vicinity of, of the little Greek Uniate parish. Riley assured us that the police had combed the church from tiny basement to a trophied bell tower, and found not a sign of a clue, nor a trace of the jewels. Yet all the while police patrolled the vicinity of the church, keeping a constant, and I thought, rather obvious watch for the return of the guilty man. When the dead body of Linsky toppled into the priest's parlor, however, all the hounds of the city bade their wildest. Papers that had treated Father Tierney with some degree of consideration now openly suggested that if the man were not a priest and the police department were not so notably Catholic in personnel, the D.A. would be asking Father Tierney more than a few polite questions that followed the news of Linsky's murder. And the priest looked paler and more harried as he faced the guilt of the second murder, for he was, to all seeming, the most likely person to be suspected. I think this is what led Carl Reinhardt to do the utterly foolish thing that he did. But since he handled this part of the investigation all by himself, perhaps it would be better if the adventure were told in his own words. I merely remarked by way of prelude that when Riley and I heard the story from his lips, we looked upon him as one of the rarest chumps it has been our blessed privilege to know. Carl's Story No doubt about it, I felt like a chump, too, before, throwing in after my solo flight as a detective. But with the fingers of the world pointing in increasing numbers at Father Tierney, I just had to take the steps I took, silly as they seemed and futile as they were for the time being. Briefly, I didn't believe that the police had ransacked that church so carefully as they could and should, and some hunch nudged me into the belief that I could find things that they had missed, perhaps some essential clue, perhaps the jewels themselves. At any rate, when I heard from our good friend Sergeant Riley that the police were withdrawing the police guard from the church, even though the diocese still kept it closed to public worship, I felt that my chance had come, my hour for amateur sleuthing. I felt like an incipient Nero Wolf. Riley and Pierre Anton and I had dinner together in a small restaurant on the edge of Chicago's Loop, a place frequented by Italians and Chicagoans that know good food and appreciate low prices. Riley hit out to track down some information about the barrier smoke shop, information about which he was remarkably secretive, though Pierre and I tried our best to pump him. Pierre lit for home, admitting that he was dead from lack of sleep during the preceding days, and that he wanted nothing but a little quiet and rest, and I found myself alone, and with the most wonderful opportunity for exploring that church by myself. So I announced that I thought I'd hit the mattress too, and we parted at the door of the restaurant. Only after cutting slightly north in the apparent direction of home, I swung back south and west, picked up a Blue Island car, and dropped off three blocks below the Church of St. Sergius. It was still only eight o'clock, much too early for the prowling I intended to do, so I stopped in at a little neighborhood movie and watched through the gentle aura of garlic and Jewish cooking the adventures of a plush lady and a hand-stuffed cowboy in a series of episodes that seemed pretty tame after the events that had occupied us during these past feverish days. When my watch radium 10.30, I left the newsreels unrolling the world before the neighborhood and headed in leisurely fashion back toward the church. 
In the pocket of my coat was a chisel and a flash with fresh batteries, and in my heart was the thrill of my first enterprise of this sort. Then things began to happen. Two blocks from the church I bumped forcefully and vigorously into the last man on earth I wanted to meet. I pulled back in a hurry and tried to pass around him, but Schwartz caught me by the arm, and I saw that under his light coat he was wearing his bund uniform. The bun cap stood out in the light of a nearby lamppost. Reinhardt, he said, and his voice was gruff and heavy, with not quite smothered anger. I have just come from a bund meeting. I don't need to tell you that your name was mentioned, without enthusiasm. At that I put it mildly. If I were a German like you... I am an American citizen, I blazed back at him. He shrugged. Under Hitler, Germans are Germans, whatever the land that shelters them. But as I was saying, if I were a German like you, and like you had tried to trick my countrymen, I should not be walking the streets of a city so late, alone. And he swung off into the night, leaving me just a little more limp than I cared to confess even to myself. Another block unrolled under my still leisurely stride, and I met my second unwelcome acquaintance. She was talking to some woman on the corner, and for a moment I was sure that the second woman was the countess. That seemed incredible, though, and as I came within closer seeing range, the second woman shot away down a side street, and Maud Bowling Whitecliff bore down upon me with her quick, nervous strides. For just a moment, what with Schwartz, the silhouette of the woman that might have been the countess, and now this fanatical social worker, I felt haunted. But fiendish luck put in my path three people that could be witness to the fact that I was around St. Sergius Church in the regions of eleven o'clock. But Miss Whitecliffe was in no mood for conversation. She looked at me with a concentration of dislike and suspicion that lowered the temperature of my blood perceptibly, laughed rudely when I lifted my hat, and then strode off into the lower reaches of the almost deserted street. And just ahead of me loomed the now too familiar facade of the church that was my objective. I shan't bore you with the retailing of my clumsy efforts to kill time before making my approach, my affected carelessness as I reached the shadows of the building, my quick little run. I fancy I learned that from the movie criminals, as I saw that the street was really clear. I ducked into the dense darkness that lay on the far side of the church, the side away from the little rectory. I know that I felt as clumsy as a gorilla in a conservatory. Perhaps I was more deaf than I seemed. My plan was simple. I meant to pry open a window as far forward in the church as possible, enter the little sanctuary, explore the church, and test a half-dozen little conjectures that I'd formed during the preceding days. I know that when I slipped my chisel under the window, I blessed the happy chance that made the hardware in this old church rusty and untrustworthy. For the window gave with one short click, and I lifted it with the quiet expertness that would, I am sure, have done credit to the second-story men's union local 13. One leg over the sill, the other, a pause to pull my raincoat out of reach of probable protruding nails, and I dropped to the floor. One sweep of my flashlight gave me general directions, and I headed in complete darkness for the sacristy. There, I was absolutely sure, lay the key to the mystery, perhaps the jewels, certainly a clue that we all had missed. I groped my way along the communion rail and into the sacristy. I closed the sacristy door carefully, shutting off the church and any possibility that my movements might be heard, and with recurrent flashes of my light, I began the most careful combing of everything in that narrow little room that once had been the vestry of a Protestant minister. And it was the world's most futile search. Either there never had been anything to find, or the police had done a better job than I was willing to believe. 
for there was just nothing to justify my efforts. I remember wondering with a wry kind of amusement whether Philo Vance or Sherlock himself wouldn't have hit on a white feather that was the symbol of some secret society, or gathered up a handful of dust that would have contained more information than fossil sand does under the eye of a paleontologist. My quest was for something bigger than that, and I found just nothing. I know that, disappointed and disgusted, I leaned against the little vesting table and ran my hand over my eyes, the way one would do in a dark room. And as I did, I know that some strange unclassified sense, some nervous apperception, told me that I was not alone in that church. No, I knew there couldn't be anyone else in that stuffy little sacristy, but though I'd heard not the slightest sound, I was absolutely sure that there was another person somewhere out there in the blackness that held the body of the church in captivity. My first impulse was to throw open the door and flash my light around, but I remembered that I'd read somewhere that that was the finest way in the world to make oneself a target for a bullet. A man in the darkness had only to shoot at the light, and it was curtains. But if I could not use my light, I could use my ears. So with the greatest caution I could manage, in defiance of the trembling of my nerves, I opened the sacristy door little by little, and stood, all my powers gathered into a single sharp point of auditory attention. And there was no further doubt about it. The sounds were so slight that an occasional street noise spotted them in complete blackout. But a man, as he moves through space, careful as he may be, creates some sounds around him utterly different from all other sounds in the world. I waited, not knowing what to do. Then suddenly I heard from up over my head a click. It was followed by a low rumble that made my throat go dry and my fingers convulse in terror. But the instinctive reaction was relieved by the desire to laugh. Someone had turned on the electric switch of the organ in the loft in the back of the church, and the automatic fellows were beginning their first mournful sigh before they settled down to the business of feeding wind to the pipes. Laughter in turn dried in my throat. What crazy idea was this? In the darkness, in this church of murder and thievery, somebody had come to play the organ by night. I stood hardly breathing, following in imagination each step of the unseen organist. Would he turn on the light and show himself to me through the darkness? I felt rather than heard him open the cover of the manuals and slowly turn it back. I could imagine him slipping softly onto the organ bench. His foot struck an unexpected manual pedal, and one short grunt broke the stillness. Quickly, I argued, the man, or is it a woman, is no organist. A skilled organist slides in and out without risking the slightest possibility of brushing the quickly aroused pedals. I seemed to feel the fingers grope in the darkness for the old-fashioned stops, and I wondered whether he would be organist enough to pick out soft stops, or would instead choose some loud-blasting combination that would respond in a blaring sound. I soon had my answer. Through the silence came the sound of a fumbled chord, correct enough but inexpert in the pressure on the keys. With only one hand, the organist, man or woman, fumbled about, and as he or she caught at the chords, I know I tried to associate this action with any of the characters in our drama. Schwartz came of a musical race, the Germans. He might quite easily have had a bit of organ training as a boy. The Countess? Well, she had certainly learned the polite accomplishments of a noble woman, of which music was one. Father Tierney? Yes, he had a key to the church, and in the seminary undoubtedly an organ would have become familiar to him. As for Miss Whitecliffe, wasn't there the chance that a woman who managed a center, which among other things offered recreation of a sort, might know a trifle about basic chords? One determination, however, was tightening the muscles in my throat. 
Somehow I had to get into that choir loft. I had to turn on a light. I had to see who was fooling around with that keyboard. Conviction forced itself on me until I was certain that if I could see the face of that musician, I'd see the face of the thief and murderer. Scarcely daring to breathe, I moved from the shadow of the sacristy into what appeared the deeper shadows of the church, then toward a narrow side altar that gave me the wall for my guidance, and back into the rear where the darkness was pitch black under the little choir loft. Back in the darkness the musician kept fumbling. Suddenly one of the pipes squeaked, and instantly the music stopped. Again in the blackness the musician picked out his keys, and after a moment the pipe squeaked again. This time he held his finger lingeringly on the squeaking key, as if the ugly dissonance gave him some peculiar pleasure. Then silence again. Soon I had reached the foot of the narrow stairs that led up into the choir loft. I heard a slight movement of feet above my head. The musician was now walking quietly about the loft. Then again the fumbling for chords and the wheeze of that dissonant pipe, and I was well on my way, creeping noiselessly, bent until I was almost crawling, on hands and knees up the steps. Above me I heard a peculiar scraping sound, then more footsteps, and in my intensity I gripped my flash as if it were a weapon. In fact, I was almost at the point now where my head was on a level with the floor of the loft, and I turned the flash in the general direction of the scraping sound. In a moment, no doubt of that, I would look straight into the face of the person we wanted. I knew with all the intensity of my deepest convictions that that face would not be Father Tierney's. I pointed my flash, took a final step, felt with my thumb for the button that would throw the light, and suddenly, evidently one step was a trifle higher than the other, I hit my toe against a tread and plunged forward into the loft. Because I had been so tense and taut, I fell hard, fell with a thudding bang that seemed to wake a thousand echoes in the silent church. Painfully I arose, determined to flood the loft with light and learn the identity of the intruder. As I turned I heard a sharp breath behind me, and that was all. The blow that laid me flat there on the choir loft floor was evidently swift, skillful, and vindictive, and I was completely out, like a candle smashed into the hand of a giant. That's my story, and that's all I know. When I came to, there was what I thought to be a trace of light in the windows of the church. I was wrong. It was merely the reflection of an auto lamp that faded even as I looked. My watch in the darkness radiated the hour. It was two o'clock. A.M., evidently. I felt my head woefully and touched the bump with tender regret. Then I scuffled my feet around the floor until they touched the torch, which must have fallen out of my hand. I picked it up and turned its white light in purposeful gestures around the loft. The empty church below, the staircase, there was less than nothing. I went back to my window, climbed out cautiously, and got a belated owl taxi that took me home and to bed. At least I'd tried. I'd come closer to the solution than had any of the others, and I'd failed. That's the story as Carl told it to Riley and myself the next morning. I know that as he told it, Riley and I avoided each other's eyes. It was such a simple trick, such a purposeless one, and the implications might make everything far, far worse for Father Tierney, or for... It was such a stupid trick. Carl, I said, touching his arm gently, for he was still a sick-looking man with a goose egg, giving a queer contour to the front of his head. Don't you see what a gosh-awful thing you did? Suppose you'd been caught. Nobody in the world would have thought you were anyone else but the thief going back to find his hidden swag. I saw from the grim line of Riley's jaw that he had thought of that, too. Carl rubbed his goose egg ruefully. That's an angle I didn't think of, he admitted. Then he looked from one to the other of us almost wistfully. 
I admit it that I am a prize ass, he said quietly, but you don't really think that I'm the man you're looking for, do you? Riley laughed shortly. Carl, he said, no matter what I say, is bound to hurt your feelings. But I honestly think the fellow we want is a lot, lot smarter than you are. If you ever are arrested, you can plead incredible ignorance and extenuating stupidity. And we all laughed in sharp relief. Only fifteen minutes later, Riley had the two of us in a taxi once more, and with an official warrant from headquarters, turned us toward the little church on Blue Island Avenue. Because of the events of the night, Riley had asked that a patrolman be put back on the job. A big, hearty copper waved at us when we presented our papers and inserted the key in the church door. Riley swung it open and we followed him in. Looks a lot different from the way it looked last night, said Carl with a short laugh, and Riley turned straight for the choir stairs. It's a very, very smart criminal that leaves no clues behind him, he said, and I think we'll take a look. The three of us in the little choir loft made the thing seem about the size of a collar box, and investigation was largely a matter of trying not to get in each other's way. I know that Carl was glad when Riley told him to sit down and relax. I sat on the ledge of the railing and watched the detective as he went over that organ, the bench, the floor, the rail with the thoroughness of a hungry hound disposing of a large smooth bone. He scratched his head thoughtfully as he finally stopped in the center of the choir facing the organ. Then he bounded forward suddenly and gripped the music cabinet that stood slightly to the right. On the top of it was the usual disorderly pile of music that clutters all rail-regulated choirs, but the pile was tipped crazily away toward the wall, as if it had been jolted and thrown out of balance. Riley's strong hands jerked the case from the wall, and then he plunged his right arm down and back. "'Got it!' he cried eagerly, and I could see that Carl thought he meant the missing treasure, for his face lighted and he was with Riley in a single bound." Only it was no catch of jewels that Riley pulled out from behind that dusty case. It was a bun cap, clean and neat except for the brief contact with the whitewashed wall, and Riley held it in triumph. Schwartz, I cried. Here at last was the real clue. Riley nodded grimly, and with stern satisfaction he reconstructed the scene of the night before. You met Schwartz on the street near the church, didn't you, Carl? Carl nodded. He gave you time to get out of the way, broke into the church, much as you did, came up to the choir loft and tossed us out on that stack of music. You disturbed him in whatever he was doing, recovering the jewels, perhaps. Riley interrupted himself to scan that tiny choir loft in puzzled anger. Not room here to hide a kid's first tooth, he said, interpreting his own look, and then he resumed the reconstructing. When he heard you, he moved suddenly and jarred the pile of music, and his hat pitched back against the wall and slid out of sight. He hit you and didn't dare pause to look for his hat, that precious telltale cap. He was off, and the smart criminal had made his one mistake. I know we all felt the same thrill of satisfaction, but Riley was all business. Let's get him, he cried, and poured the three of us down that short flight of stairs as if we were a human landslide slipping over a steep hillside. Yes, the secretary said. Mr. Schwartz was in his office. Yes, she continued after a brief consultation on the phone. He'd see us. Riley's nod meant that he'd better see us. Grasping a little more securely the newspaper in which he had sandwiched the bun cap, he led us across the ante-office, and the secretary threw open the door to reveal Schwartz very busily occupied with papers at his large and expensive desk. Schwartz, barked Riley, in his best you'd-better-come-through-or-else voice, we have a few questions to ask you. Schwartz waved us to chairs with all the calm of a millionaire meeting a benevolent society committee's request for a donation. Only Riley had no time for polished acting. 
He leaned across the desk, his face close to Schwartz, and said almost in a whisper, How about a complete program of your activities last evening? Schwartz shrugged his shoulders. And you talk of police interference in Germany, he sneered. Well, I worked fairly late in the office, then walked home, and on the way met your good friend here, Reinhardt. He'll vouch for that. Riley copied the sneer. Correct. He found you very close to St. Sergius Church. And Riley hammered those last words with his voice and three blows on the polished desk. Schwartz shrugged again and continued, And I went home and slept peacefully, anticipating, I'm sure, some pleasant surprise in the morning, even perhaps a visit from friends like you. And an alibi all arranged, I suppose. Well, I was called to the phone, as is not unusual with me, three times between eleven and twelve o'clock. Those calls will be easy to check, and as one of the men is merely a business acquaintance, I think even the police may accept his evidence that I was home last evening when he called me. Why are you so insistent, cried Riley, on your whereabouts between eleven and twelve? The bun leader flushed angrily. Because, he said, after that I was in bed, asleep. Before that your friend can account for me. And anyhow, it bores me to answer your impertinent questions, and I demand to know by what right. Riley had a sense of the dramatic and from out of his folded newspaper he whisked the bun cap. Like a magician climaxing his best trick, he thrust it under the bunster's nose. Because you may be interested to know where I found that. Either the man was a magnificent actor, I thought, or his conscience was that of a babe in arms. He merely looked at the hat for a second, and then, through slightly glinted eyes, turned his gaze on the detective. Frankly, he said, I don't care where you found it. Then I'll tell you anyhow, and see how you take it. That hat was found by us three this morning in the church of St. Sergius. It's clean, so it's not been there long. And last night, but I'm sure you know more about last night than any of us do. Now will you tell us where you were last evening and what you were doing, or shall I take you and your bun cap straight to headquarters? My cap? Schwartz thrust the pronoun in flat insult. With a quick gesture, he took the cap in one hand and with a forefinger of the other pressed the button. Instantly the secretary appeared. Bring me, said he, and he flipped back the sweatband of the cap and looked inside. Files of uniforms from 20,000 to 21,000. We stood silent at this unexpected twist in the business. In a flash, the secretary was back and laying on his desk a locked folder. His key opened it. His thick finger ran down the list. His nervous eye compared what he found on the paper with markings on the inside of the cap. Then... I have not too much respect for the American police, he said in heavy insult. This is not my cap, and he held it out to Carl. This cap belongs to your precious friend here. And he flung the cap to Carl, who instinctively caught it. Now, if you'll please relieve me of this annoying, boring visitation. End of chapter 6 Recording by Maria Therese